Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by my co-host Hazib Qureshi of Metastable and uh, Sunny Agrawal of Cosmos. Sunny, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on. Welcome, welcome, Sunny. Today, the topic is going to be on blockchain interoperability. So this is obviously a, a big topic and a lot of an area of very active research, as you yourself are well acquainted. So I guess to start us off, let's just first define what the problem is. So what the hell is blockchain interoperability? Hey, yeah, sure. So I guess I could start off by saying that it is actually a very undefined problem right now. Like, when different people say blockchain interoperability, they usually are actually talking about oftentimes very different things. So you have like people talking about things like atomic swaps or interledger protocol. You have the kind of stuff that I'm more focused on, which is like inter-blockchain communication. And so, you know, we can jump into all of these. But essentially, at the end of the day, it's really a way of let's right now, almost every chain is sort of like stuck in its own little world. And there's no way to like do anything between exchanges other than going through central operators. So, you know, yes, we can exchange coins today, but like the only way to do that is by going through centralized exchanges who are like, you know, maybe running the software of multiple blockchains. And so, you know, when people are talking about blockchain interoperability, they're usually talking about some way like of doing some decentralized protocol in which it allows different blockchains to you know, you can trade between blockchains or you can send assets between blockchains. You maybe can send data between blockchains, things like that. And so for the sake of completeness, why is this an important problem? I mean, we already have exchanges where you can trade assets and people seem to be roughly fine with the status quo. What can't we do that we might want to do in the future? Sure. So I guess with the when it comes to exchanges and stuff, you know, I think these major centralized exchanges we see today are act are sort of like huge central points of failure. And, you know, especially when it comes to like regulatory concerns, they are sort of like this impediment to like a lot of innovation and and a few centralized exchanges that are like that try to go around like, you know, try to take a more cypherpunk approach are like they've been working, but like now they're like, even they're starting to like fall prey to like re- regulatory issues. Like, you know, sh- the obvious example in the, from this month is uh, Shapeshift is like going through a lot of legal troubles there, I believe. And then also, you know, the side that uh, interoperability that I'm actually personally more focused on is the scalability side of things where I think this is a sort of a very naive way of putting it. But like, you know, let's say one blockchain could do x amount of throughput well and you want 10x throughput how do you do that well easy you just make 10 blockchains and now you have 10x throughput as long as they can still talk to each other so obviously that's a little bit of a toy dummy like example it's obviously a lot more complicated than that but essentially that's sort of like the main idea like you know we want a single threaded system like when, when you look at like cpu architectures or anything today right and computers you know, you, you're basically never running on a single threaded system anymore. You're always running on multi-threaded systems, multi-core systems, multiple computers even. And But, you know, all of these computers and threads and everything have ways of communicating with each other, sharing data back and forth, making sure, like, they're not corrupting the same data that they're both working on at the same time. And so 
very similar kind of scalability benefits can be seen from well-designed interoperability protocols. Each blockchain is sort of acting as a single-threaded system. So I know that uh, scalability is one of the things that Cosmos particularly talks about it. The story there kind of sounds similar to sharding, right? Where in sharding, the story is, well, okay, you have all of these parallel blockchains that are sort of following the same consensus rules, and they can kind of pass messages to each other asynchronously. So is is the vision for a blockchain interoperability layer kind of, you know, it, it sounds like, okay, they can enable things like trading assets across different blockchains, but they can also enable the scaling of blockchains because one way to solve the scaling problem is just to have a bunch of blockchains that can talk to each other. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think how how we approach the problem is like, you know, I think most of us at Cosmos agree that like, yes, the starting end goal seems like a desirable end point. Uh, we may have different ideas of like how, what that exactly gets instantiated as. But yeah, like some sort of shared security stuff. What we saw the problem as, we saw it fundamentally as an interoperability problem. Because I think most people, when they're looking at the problem, they're starting from the view of a single blockchain and seeing, okay, or whether it's a Ethereum or Definity or whatever, like just saying, okay, how do we make this one chain like scale? When we kind of came at it looking at from the ecosystem perspective, is like, how do we make the blockchain ecosystem scale? And so it's, it's almost like less chain maximalism there. And so what we saw was, you know, if this is just an interoperability problem, what are the steps needed in order to achieve that end goal? And so we said, okay, the basic thing we want to be able to like do is send data between two blockchains. Like until you can do that, like you don't have any sort of sharding or plasma or any of that fun stuff. Like, and so that's why we started with, okay, let's have like two just completely independent blockchains send a token from one chain to the other and this is like this is the side chains right that's kind of what it really is and so we started with that created an entire consensus protocol around the idea of how do we make a consensus protocol that's like well designed for allow enabling side chains and that's where tendermint consensus came along and we designed ibc which is this like super general purpose it stands for inter-blockchain communication and what it is, is it's a super general purpose interoperability protocol, which allows basically chain A to prove something about itself to chain B. And the nice thing is that we don't actually define what that something is. It, it's kind of like how we think of it is like IBC is sort of like TCP IP, where it's like this like base protocol. But on top of TCP IP, you need like all sorts of uh, other protocols, whether it's like HTTP or FTP, SMTP. And so, you know, we just saw that tokens are like the first protocol that we need. It's like the simplest thing to do, probably has a lot of value to it. And then, you know, we're going to start moving towards shared security models. And what I've realized is if you want to do shared security models, essentially the next thing you have to do is figure out how to do validator set changes over IBC. So let's say the validator set on chain A changes, you want to be able to tell chain B, hey, by the way, you're also using the same validator set as me, you need to update your validator set. And then you start doing like fraud proofs over IBC. And you know, you just keep going down this thing. And essentially, the path to sharding in our viewpoint is like further protocols on top of IBC. Does that make sense? I got it. I got it. So let me let me actually take a step back and ask a more general question. So interoperability as an idea, it's been around for a long time. 
What were the early approaches to blockchain interoperability? You mentioned sidechains briefly, but what were those approaches and why didn't they work? Why do we need to go innovate further in making this uh, a tractable problem? Yeah, sure. I would say that the two like you know, main early approaches to blockchain interoperability were atomic swaps and sidechains, right? So I'll talk about atomic swaps first. And so atomic swaps is basically the idea of, let's say I have some Bitcoin on one chain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, and you have Ether on the Ethereum blockchain, and we want to, I want Ether, you want Bitcoin, right? And so atomic swaps were sort of like this conception of like, how can we create a system that allows us to trustlessly swap our coins? So you can have my Bitcoin and I can have your Ether. And you know, a lot of the early atomic swaps, and not early, like even current ones, like a lot of projects are building atomic swap platforms still, use a lot of like payment channels and HTLCs to achieve this in a very trustless way. And I think one of the a great example of a protocol that's like tries to do this is like the Interledger protocol. And, you know, they kind of like even loosened the requirements a little bit. They said, oh, it doesn't have to be 100% trustless. It could be like trustless based off of how much like risk you want to take on and whatnot. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, all of these protocols, Atomic Swap and Interledger Protocol, both of which I think are very valuable and like, like we're working with a lot of teams who are actually working on implementing these. At the end of the day, they're sort of just about trading like or swapping. It doesn't actually allow value to move across chains because at the end of the day, I have $5 of Bitcoin, you have $5 of Ether no value moved from one chain to the other. It's just about like changing ownership of assets, which is very valuable. And I think like a lot of people should continue to work about it, especially because for that one use case, I think atomic swaps and ILP are much better suited for that use case than something like Cosmos uh, or IBC are. So so Um, to be clear, what you're saying is that with those previous protocols of cross-chain atomic swaps and interledger, the the ability is for me to let you take my Ethereum and I take your Bitcoin, but the but the Bitcoin and Ethereum don't go to the opposite chain. So there's no tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum. There's no tokenized Ether or whatever. I don't know what the analogy would be, but the, you know, UTXO based Ethereum on Bitcoin. That is not possible with these with these older versions of these protocols, correct? Exactly. And yeah. you know, swapping, but another great use case of this is payments. So this is kind of what Interledger Protocol really like wanted to focus on is how do you do payments? And so, you know, they saw like the credit card industry, right? When I go to, I, I'm an American. And so when I go to like another country, Europe or something, I still, when I swipe my credit card, the merchant is getting your euros and I'm still paying in dollars. How is that happening? Right. It's because behind the scenes, like my credit card company is like having a, an agreement. It's, it's basically doing some sort of like trusted, but like trusted swap with another provider of euros and like doing this all behind the scenes for me. And Interledger Protocol basically wanted to create that same user experience where, you know, they wanted, if I want to go to a store and they only accept, like, I don't know, die or something like make or die, but I want to pay in Bitcoins, I should be able to do that. And both of us shouldn't have to care because there's some like atomic swap or something going off in the background that neither of us are aware of. And so that's kind of like, you know, I think that the ILP and atomic swaps, like, protocols have their place and are definitely very useful protocols. 
so that kind of segues into like side chains and IBC and stuff. So what are they used for? If like you can do all the payments and swaps and everything using the existing uh, using that class of protocols, what you can't do is, as as you mentioned, was asset transfer. You can't move an asset from one chain to another. They're really for value transfer, right? So I want to move one Bitcoin. I want to get a tokenized version of that Bitcoin on the other chain. And so how you would normally do that is like in side chains with, you know, the blockstream people kind of like put out the first like side chain paper. But like, you know, a lot of people were thinking about this stuff even before that. And the idea is, look, what if we had a way that you could burn a token on one chain? So, you know, when blockstream put it out, they were thinking specifically about Bitcoin. So you like, not burn, you freeze a token, your Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, and then you submit proof of this freezing to the sidechain. And you know this sidechain would basically be running an on-chain light client of the Bitcoin blockchain. And so you submit proof of this bur- freezing to the sidechain, and the sidechain will basically reward you with like, oh, here's a tokenized version of that of that Bitcoin that you froze. And so, you know, unlike proof of burn, which is that step so far, what proof of what sidechain said was it also allows you to go backwards in the other direction. So I can use my minted token on the sidechain, basically burn that token and submit proof of the burning to the Bitcoin blockchain and I'll get my my, my frozen Bitcoin back. And I, I like to call this process like proof of freeze and thaw. And so... What this is cool. What's cool about this is like it's not only limited to like fungible tokens. You can use this for things like non-fungible tokens as well. Or you know, even if you're not trying to send tokens between chains, like just having this like two-way light client protocol. Like one chain is both chains are the light client of each other. You can even use it to prove data, but to the other chains, you might not be sending something, but you're just like saying like, oh, look, this thing exists in my state. And, and, and is it actually possible to implement like client functionality on Bitcoin using Bitcoin script? Yeah. So exactly. That's where the sidechain, pro, sidechain protocol uh, blockstream paper came out in, I think, like 2013 or 2014. It's been a while. But, you know, why haven't we seen implemented sidechains on uh, Bitcoin yet is because Bitcoin script is like, you know, pretty limited in its uh, capabilities, especially due to the like statelessness property of Bitcoin, of Bitcoin UTXOs and Bitcoin script. And so we have not really seen any great side, ch- any side chains show up in the Bitcoin blockchain. Oftentimes, if you ask someone like, oh, quick, name me a Bitcoin sidechain, the one that people can usually name off the top of their heads is a project called Rootstock which is, you know, they basically took a lot of the Ethereum technology, like the EVM, and are trying to run a side, an EVM sidechain to Bitcoin. And, you know, so Rootstock, people have done a lot of like research on like, oh, how can we get sidechains usable? And so, you know, you could do stuff like what they're running right now is basically almost a very trusted system where one of the issues as well with Bitcoin is that in multisigs are limited to very limited numbers of signers, like for most practical purposes, only about eight signers at a max. And so they're basically running a federated peg with like eight signers and no one else. There are some like newer protocols, which I I just tweeted about this a few days ago. Um, This is guy, Paul Storsk. He's working on a 
project called Drive Chains, which is like a very cool way of like allowing the Bitcoin miners to run like a light client and do this like sidechain protocol. But, you know, at the end of the day, what we realized is that, you know, Bitcoin is not well designed for this. And then along came Ethereum. And Ethereum said, hey, here's this like super stateful VM in which you can basically write anything you want. And this actually gave us the ability to write these sidechain protocols in the EVM. And so we actually do see some sidechains already existing within uh, connected to Ethereum. I think Parity has like a great, they call it Parity Bridge. So it's really designed for connecting. They have a consensus algorithm called Pora. Uh, it's a proof of authority consensus algorithm. And so they have like parity bridge allows you to connect your aura sidechain to the mainnet Ethereum. And so the POA network is this like project. They're they're actually using the uh parity bridge, I think, in production, which is kind of cool. Interesting. And I and I know that Ethereum also has BTC relay, which is uh right. publishes publishes Bitcoin block headers to Ethereum to allow people to verify the current state of Bitcoin on Ethereum. Right. Yeah. And that's so that so that's the thing with that one though, is it's a one way uh right. sidechain. One way peg, not a two way peg. So yeah. in theory, it's easy for me to burn my Bitcoin and get tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum, but no one has done that yet because no one's sure if that tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum is valuable. And so without the escape hatch backwards, no one is willing to like take that risk and burn their Bitcoin. Right. And of course, why would it be valuable to burn Bitcoin and then to have some asset on Ethereum that's not they can't they can't be reverted back into Bitcoin now, right? Okay, so so that's so that was kind of like the prehistory of what interoperability looked like in a, in a pure sort of Bitcoin dominant world. And I think now as we're seeing this Cambrian explosion of new chains and of course Ethereum kind of leading the way in opening up the design space of possible ways to implement interoperability, where are things going? So I know you're working on Cosmos. There are other competitors to Cosmos as well. What is the newer generation of interoperability protocols look like? I think a lot of people are interested in this like interoperability thing. And so, you know, Haseeb mentioned this like earlier and really like hit it on the nail where like sharding and interoperability are so closely tied. They're almost like different ways of looking at the same problem. And I think there's a lot of projects who are interested in sharding, especially so, you know, obviously Ethereum itself, but also Polkadot, Affinity. There's a bunch more that I can't remember off the top of my head. But from what it seems to me, a lot of the projects focused on sharding started off from the point of looking specifically at like the state machine and saying, oh, how do we prove EVM fraud proofs between chains and whatnot. And really haven't even, and I think Plasma is actually a great example of this. Like Plasma is a sort of a way of like, how do we create a very well constrained state machine such that it makes it super easy to do fraud proofs between these chains. But I haven't actually seen any Plasma implementation that's really thought about how do you have two decentralized chains talk to each other in the first place. And so this is sort of where Cosmos, we kind of like, changed how we were looking at it we haven't designed the like complex fraud proofs and stuff what we started off by saying is like looking at proof of work and saying like wait a second this thing is super hard to create a light client for it's not 
especially due to the lack of finality in proof of work, like creating like clients to this thing is going to be very difficult. And what we said was that kind of. Can weird. you explain for a second what what you mean when you say it's difficult to create a like client for a chain without finality? Yeah, sure. So let's say chain A and chain B, right? So let's say chain A is a proof of work chain. I guess it doesn't really matter what chain B is actually. So let's say chain A, you say you revert, you like froze something on chain A, and then you tried to prove it chain B, and chain B rewarded you this token. But the problem is if chain A is proof of work, the chain might reorg itself and you know, you might accidentally get your tokens back on chain A and on chain B. So now you have your original token on chain A and you have the equivalent token on chain B. And, you know, let's say a lot of people are using the same like bridge or peg peg between chain A and B. You can actually take your frozen token on chain B and send it quickly, send it back to chain, like burn it and re- retrieve someone else's token on chain A. And so now you have like, two tokens on chain A and something you basically ended up stealing from someone else. It basically makes it very easy to do like sort of a double spend attack essentially. And also another thing is that like, you know, it's very hard to decide like, okay, the the classic solution to this is like, oh, you wait six blocks or something. Right. But now like the more stuff that is sitting on this peg zone and like, it's very clear what is the threshold in order to like break the, peg zone like you you, the peg zone is saying okay wait six blocks and then it releases now you just created a massive incentive for someone to try to reorg the chain by seven blocks what tendermint did or a lot of bft protocols did was it created a system where the cost of doing a reversion once a block has been finalized is like astronomical much higher than doing a reversion of six blocks And that's kind of one of the nice things you can achieve with proof of stake as opposed to proof of work. Let's talk about like clients in general, okay? So in proof of work, how a like client would work is you need to, you need every single block between, like, let's say you turned off your phone at night and then you wake up in the morning and you turn on your phone again and you have to now sync. Even if you're just doing a like client, you have to sync all of the block headers that came overnight and check the proof of work on every single one of them. And so, you know, this is kind of actually expensive. It doesn't sound like a lot, but I've actually tested this on my phone. My phone can only do about three to four shot of 56 hashes per second. And so even for syncing a down Bitcoin like, like client that was off for maybe let's say eight, 10 hours, right? It can still take a good like 10 seconds or so and that's only bitcoin who's like has very infrequent blocks every 10 minutes and you know the block the hashing algorithm is actually really easy to do i actually i'm not sure off the top of my head but i wonder like imagine you turn off your ethereum like client overnight it might take like even a couple minutes to like sync your like client after being off for only eight hours what tendermint allows you to do is you know without jumping too much into the details of tendermint because this isn't really this episode isn't really about tendermint consensus but it really allows you to basically turn off your phone at night turn it on in the morning and sync very few blocks you basically only have to sync the blocks in which more than a third of the validator set has changed usually oftentimes zero blocks but like usually in like not not ever more than like two or three blocks you can 
usually catch up to the latest state of the network. And so doing this for side chains is very valuable as well, because this means you don't actually have to send every block between the two side chains. You only have to send the blocks in which someone is actually making a transfer. Got it. So let me let me see if I can zoom out and summarize a little bit what we kind of just went over. So in order for something like Cosmos to work or any kind of peg, really, or any kind of uh, interoperability layer between two chains, the two chains have to somehow be like clients of each other, which we established earlier, meaning that they each have to know the state of the other chain. And so the way that it would look is that you know all of the, let's say, for example, there was a there was a two-way peg between Bitcoin and Ethereum, which we already established isn't really possible, but let's imagine there was. Then in that case, all of the Bitcoin, which was tokenized on Ethereum, would live at a single address or at a single multisig and like this big pile of Bitcoin that was all kind of frozen, as you said, kind of the same way that we have a bunch of Bitcoin on like, you know, in Coinbase's wallet, we would have a bunch of Bitcoin in, let's say, the, the you know, Bitcoin Ethereum sidechain address, right? Um, and so all of this uh, stuff would be frozen. And the same thing would be true on Ethereum. There'd be probably, in Ethereum's case, some smart contract that managed a big pile of Ether that was all frozen and tokenized on Bitcoin. And that contract kept uh, was basically a like client of Bitcoin such that it always knew what was happening with Bitcoin. Now, you said the reason why proof of work is really problematic for this is that basically when you have two proof of work chains trying to keep sync with each other, uh, well, proof of work chains change their minds all the time. They they end up reverting blocks. They end up forking, and this is really bad because it means that you know potentially forking within your own system is okay, but when another system is relying on you, and then you start forking, a lot of bad stuff happens, and you lose a lot of you know what what you think of as normal economic guarantees. Like okay, I you know I froze this Bitcoin, you gave me some tokenized Bitcoin, but now the original Bitcoin is gone. I saw this tokenized Bitcoin which doesn't know about it. How do I how do I keep all that stuff in sync? It becomes really hard. So for something like Cosmos. Having systems that are that are proof of stake based, like like based on the Tendermint consensus protocol, that allows you to avoid this whole forking business and all this whole reversion business. Those chains are much easier to interrupt with each other because not just because they were maybe designed for that in the first place, but more specifically because their consensus mechanism, which doesn't allow any of this forking, makes just that whole problem go away. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that's one of the benefits of like why you want BFT consensus over the proof of work. So does that mean that, you know, creating, so I mean, one of the, one of the promises that people have made about the future of, of tokenized assets and blockchain interoperability is that someday you're going to be able to go around and buy stuff on Ethereum using tokenized Bitcoin and blah, blah, blah. Are, is what you're telling me that this is not going to happen? No, I'm not. How Cosmos attempts to solve this problem is that we have a project called Peggy, which is sort of a, modification of the normal IBC protocol that we have, which is IBC was really well designed for chains with finality, like BFT to BFT chains. Peggy is basically saying, okay, it's sort of a version that's designed for BFT to proof of work chains. And so this will allow us to like, what we're kind of suggesting, one of the value propositions of the Cosmos hub is that it is a blockchain that is specifically optimized for like doing these kind of connections. And so if you want to move Bitcoin to like your tokenized your Bitcoin to like another chain, we suggest taking it through the hub. So the hub will handle the Peggy side of thing, connecting to proof of work. And then, you know, then you can move your Bitcoin onto all the other chains in the Cosmos ecosystem. And 
you know, you don't have to go back to Bitcoin every single time. You can go through this like BFT blockchain, which is the Cosmos hub. We have an implementation for connecting to Ethereum. Connecting to Bitcoin is once again a bit harder for, you know, all the kind of similar reasons that we've already mentioned. And so the idea is also once Ethereum switches to Casper, it will actually become a little bit easier to do this IBC protocol to Ethereum. So, you know, that's something to look forward to because then Ethereum will have that finality. But on the other hand, I don't think the Casper designs are really as well defined for like like client proofs as like Tendermint is. But, you know, we, for similar reasons I've talked about where it doesn't have this property where it's very easy to sync up the like client. Sure. So at a high level, then let's just, let's just kind of uh, give the five hundred foot view of what the Cosmos network looks like. So from what you're telling me, there is a there's a hub called the Cosmos Hub, and you talked about you know how interoperability depends on this kind of light client architecture. So the Cosmos Hub serves as a light client to all these other chains, and naturally you you know this kind of hub and spoke model where the Cosmos Hub is the light client to all these other blockchains and all the other blockchains are like clients of the Cosmos hub, um, but they don't all have to be like clients of each other because that's a sort of end-to-end, you know, N-squared problem. It's it's really kind of a pain in the ass. It's more natural, kind of like airports, for example, that everybody just connects to Denver and then Denver gets you to your final destination in the same way the Cosmos hub is like the, you know, it's the hub that, that connects all these tokenized assets or tokenized coins from each blockchain amongst each other. Is that basically the right story? So it would be rather somewhere more in the middle where exactly like you said, point to point connections lose a lot of efficiency, but we also don't see there being a singular hub. I think it'll be like, you know, not everything routes through Denver, right? There's a couple of hubs that like pop up. And so that's sort of where we see it going more where it'll be like a couple of major hubs that sort of connect to each other and they connect to the other and all of the hubs sort of are connected to their own like little I don't know, what do you want to call them, spheres of influence or something? And so it's cool because we actually already see the implementation of other hubs in the Cosmos ecosystem. There's a project called IrisNet, which is sort of creating a hub that is specialized for like the Chinese enterprise market. You know, one of the reasons that we were super interested in this and like, you know, we've been working closely with IrisNet team is because we see this situation of like, if you know, Eric Schmidt, actually chairman of Google, just had this like, interview last week i think where he talked about like you know he he thinks the internet's going to be split in half within the next 10 years due to the great firewall of china and so it'll be actually kind of cool to have this like separate hub in the chinese ecosystem that can kind of continue to operate even while being disconnected from the cosmos hub what's what i like about this model actually is what tendermint does is it heavily prioritizes safety while IBC, two connected Tendermint chains can kind of be available in their own little worlds, even if they are disconnected. So I think this like Tendermint chains connected by IBC is this cool like combination of like prioritizing safety where you want safety and allowing for availability where you want availability. I just want to interrupt really quick just to say that uh, we at Village Global hosted that Eric Schmidt event, but that was not a native advertisement. Uh Thank you for the shop. Cool. I did not even realize that actually. (laughs) Okay, so okay, let's let's assume that Cosmos works. Okay, you guys succeed in your goal. Fast forward five years, blockchain interoperability has been completely solved. How does crypto look different than it does today? What what do you envision that world looking like? 
So I guess, you know, I guess we can talk specifically about start off with how the crypto space looks a little bit different. I think there has been this like push in the last two or so years, two or three years, where people have been pushing this idea that if you can create a super valuable application, magically the token of that application will accrue value, especially this whole like utility token mindset that's been going on where it's like, oh, if this is the token that you need in order to use this application, that token will be valuable. And you see this in a lot of, you know, ERC-20s, but also even like in Ether itself, the theory is that Ether is valuable because you need it to pay gas in Ethereum. That is actually kind of true, even with IBC because of like designs of how the EVM was created, but someone can create a version of Ethereum where that's not the case. And so essentially what I think IBC would allow is it allows for the separation of assets from the underlying computation layers. So right now, Bitcoin is kind of like stuck because it can't be used for anything other than sending Bitcoin to other people. And but once IBC comes into the world and, you know, we've solved this peg zone issue with Bitcoin, we you can actually use your Bitcoin on the EVM, right? And this is kind of like the premise of what Rootstock was kind of saying. Or you can use your Bitcoin in like to pay in prediction markets on a prediction market zone, or you can use it to, you know, do any sort of things. And so this like separation of the assets from their underlying logic layers, I think will be one of the biggest changes that we will see. And that's not to say that there'll be like suddenly, oh, all everything, all the other altcoins will die and only Bitcoin will be left. I think it'll just mean that we'll see a lot more, you know, if you want to differentiate a coin that you're creating or like a payment system, it's it's really going to come more like I'm hoping to see more innovation in like monetary policy because I think that's kind of cool. Like like this rise of like different versions of doing stable coins is kind of cool, different monetary policies, um, things like that. And, you know. I can give you another example of like uh, an example of a coin that would probably disappear is Zcash, right? Somehow the value proposition of Zcash is that it's the only coin you could use in this like zero with these zero knowledge proofs. But like, you know, there's already some talk today about like, oh, what if we add the snark capability to Ethereum? Like, what is the value proposition of Zcash the coin anymore? It's like, if I can just create a Zcash-like zone, just copy their code base and launch a chain, in, which actually allows me to accept any incoming coin with IBC, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or DAI, and send it in this like zero-knowledge environment. There's no reason that it had to be just this one coin that can reap the benefits of this like computational innovation. That's a really interesting idea. I had not, I had not thought of that. I mean, in... in- in practice, there'd be a ton of difficulties of that just because of the fact that the the collateral pool that is shielded would, would be differentiated based on, okay, well, there's like five shielded Bitcoin, there's 20 shielded Ether, right? I mean, this would this would this would kind of somewhat weaken the anonymity set of the shielded transaction pool in, in something like Zcash. No? Right, that's true. Although to be fair, the shielded transaction pool of Zcash it's already is pretty small. Poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty small. That is that is a very interesting idea. So I, I I'll give you my take on this, and I think I might be a little bit take take a slightly different tack than you. So if you, if you assume blockchain interoperability is totally solved, then I think you know the 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 story that we've 
scene play out where there are all these different competitors to Bitcoin. And like you mentioned, there's sort of the, you know, the asset du jour of this particular use case or blockchain or utility. That's, that's likely to go away in that, you know, when you think about it, something being a store of value, we talk about Bitcoin being a store of value or digital gold, being a store of value is kind of the ultimate network effect, right? And, and the primary reason why Bitcoin isn't just, you know, run away, obviously, the 99% holder of all value in crypto is in large part because you can't use Bitcoin on most crypto applications, you know, other than the very limited set of things you can do with Bitcoin, which is just transfer Bitcoin. The other thing too, is that if you, any kind of trading is not really possible entirely within the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so you need centralized exchanges, even decentralized exchanges right now, you know, the ones built on Ethereum, for example, there's no way for them to trade any other assets. So you just have a much more limited experience in what DEXs can do. You have a much more limited experience in what can be done purely on on top of the Bitcoin platform. But if Bitcoin as a monetary asset can be exported and used on other chains, then that kind of should steal a lot of demand away from using things like ETH or any other asset as a reserve currency or as a store of value. And so my my first assumption would be if blockchain operability is completely solved to the extent that Bitcoin is tokenized and can be used on any chain just as easily as its own native asset can be, that that would magnify the network effect of Bitcoin dramatically uh, and probably mean that a lot of other stuff is just drained of value relative to Bitcoin or whatever ends up being, if it's not Bitcoin, whatever else ends up being that store of value asset. And my, my other guess is that, like you mentioned, a lot of the utility tokens kind of fall away because their 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 narrative strength kind of disappears. But I would also suspect that, you know, because of the problems you mentioned with the difficulty of interopping with Bitcoin, my guess is that it'll probably always suck to have any kind of interoperability with Bitcoin unless Bitcoin dramatically changes at some time in the near future, which I have a hard time imagining. And if, if interop with Bitcoin sucks sufficiently badly, and in the sense that it's just, it's really slow, it's potentially dangerous, like people don't really trust it. Like, you know, large block reorgs end up screwing you up. And maybe we've seen this kind of thing before, but the peg keeps running because there's just some value to having Bitcoin tokenized. Uh, that, that might end up giving enough room for other assets to impinge on Bitcoin's network effects. But so what do you think then about the story of, you know, a lot of people have described this kind of almost, you know, futuristic cyberpunk story that in the future, you know, your 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 wallet is just going to hold one token and then it's going to instantly transfer in and out of other tokens as needed to pay for particular use uh, particular, you know, uh, applications or use cases as needed. But most of the time your token is going to live in all of your wallet is going to live inside of one token. Do you think that's a likely future for crypto? Yeah, okay. So that's a lot to unpack there. So I guess let's start with Bitcoin side of things, what you were saying. I think one thing where I personally see Bitcoin going, or maybe not see it going, but at least what I hope it's, I would like to see it go, is I would like a system in which the Bitcoin proof of work system, the blockchain sort of just turns into this proof of work mint where people submit proof of work and get bitcoin but then immediately they move that bit the miners themselves where are the ones are because people are not at some point no one's going to want this like why are you sending me bitcoin on the bitcoin blockchain like get it to me on the cosmos hub and then and then send it to me and like because all the dexes will be out in the, the cosmos ecosystem and whatnot and so i think the bitcoin blockchain will turn into this proof of work mint and coins are basically almost immediately moved off 
of the Bitcoin blockchain and into other chains. And mo the coins will continue to live and there's, there'll be almost no reason for them to fall back to the main Bitcoin blockchain. So Bitcoin um, almost becomes like the DTCC, like just this sort of amorphous clearinghouse that no one ever actually touches. What do you mean by the clearinghouse? I see the Cosmos Hub being more of the clearinghouse. I see. Sorry, it, I, I use the word. Yeah, not not the clearinghouse, but rather the uh, the custodian. Sure. Yes. Yes. At the end of the day, all of your your Bitcoin on other chains is backed by true Bitcoin on the like. Bitcoin blockchain, but like really no one's actually going to be using that, that Bitcoin. So that's, that's a very interesting vision of what the future of interoperability might look like. So, okay. So let's talk then about in this. So you, you talked about what might happen if we interop with something like Zcash and kind of, you know, Zcash would obviously have to change dramatically for that to be possible, but, or I could go take the Zcash code base and just launch yes. a, Tendermint chain with it. One of the you know pitch on a little bit of pitch of a Tendermint is that I, one of the cool things about Tendermint is you can basically take any existing state machine and run it on Tendermint Core. We've done these abstractions very well, so it's very easy for me to take Zcash VM or the EVM. This is something we're actually doing. It's a project called Ethermint. It's very easy for me to just copy these computational layers and launch them on Tendermint chains and connect them to the Cosmos ecosystem. Got it. But in the absence of any explicit privacy coin that or privacy focused blockchain that lives at, uh, as one of the, the the zones, I think they're called the the blockchains connected to the hub. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's the term we came up with. Yes. So what in in the absence of something like Zcash or Monero, if let's say I'm just using Cosmos with Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever, what does the privacy guarantees of using something like Cosmos look like? To be fair, we haven't actually done. You know, Cosmos, we focused a lot on the scalability and interoperability side of things. Privacy was never really one of our, I don't know, strong suits, I would say, or focuses, because I think there's a lot of better work being done by a lot of other people, obviously. And so I think that each individual chain can actually have its like, you know, sort of Zcash-like functionality or ring signatures like Monero-like functionality, this stuff should probably hopefully be built into every chain. So, you know, regardless of what chain you're using, whether you're using, uh, I don't know, a prediction market chain or like whatnot, it'll be very nice to be able to actually have like snark capabilities and whatnot in order to have privacy on any chain. It's still actually a pretty big open research question whether it's possible to do IBC in zero knowledge and so that's something that we are like you know interested in but haven't really spent too much brain power thinking about yet but you know one of the funny things is like if you even if you think about it even on zcash not everything is private right like even zcash itself has this like shielded portion and open portion and so it's having a zone that is specifically for shielded purposes it's kind of just similar to what zcash is already doing right now right that makes sense so let's imagine, let, let's say that uh, Cosmos weren't to succeed. How do you imagine, what, what's like the most likely way in which you can imagine interoperability kind of not fulfilling its promise? Sure. I guess part of the proof of stake model is that like your, the amount that's being transferred, that's being held in these pegs or these IBC endpoints should not be greater than the like economic stake backing your uh, other ch the other chain. 
And so for this reason, I don't think that the, you know, the model that Cosmos has been pitching so far of like sovereign chains, like with independent validator sets is that sustainable in the long term. And I seeing, I see that, but like I said, that's never really been our long-term goal. The long-term goal is to go to more towards like a proper sharding version where it's like with shared security and stuff. But I guess like, yeah, so one of the issues like with the sovereign interoperability models is that like it adds all sorts of complication regarding like chain the security of chains that you're sending to. And it's also very possible that like, oh, here's another part, right? I think another thing that we really have to get right is the UX. I think that like, right, like the UX of using singular chains right now is pretty atrocious. Now imagine having to like have a wallet that understands this IBC stuff and can like actually send tokens, like understands your addresses between all of these chains. Like, you know, you can have a different address on every chain that you have. Another one, you know, one of the problems that I've been actually thinking about a lot lately is let's say like I want to move my token. One of the nice things about uh, Ethereum is like no matter what DAP I want to use, I can I don't have to move my coins, my Ether to that DAP in order to pay my transaction fees. I can just like pay my transaction fees from my Ether account and I can use that for any DAP. And I think I, I, I'm pretty sure I have a solid mechanism for doing this actually now is a way for like allowing someone who has to keep their coins on the hub but still be able to pay their transaction fees for any zone. So they don't actually have, I think this is kind of cool because let's say you have a zone that's like focused on a game, like let's say CryptoKitties or something like that. Then it's like, you know, I don't want to have to move my coins onto that zone just to play the game. It'll be very cool if I can keep my like monetary assets on the most secure blockchain, which, you know, biased obviously, but I hope is the Cosmos hub. And but still be able to pay my transaction fees on other chains. So I have this like cool mechanism I've been playing around with for the past two weeks uh, with using like payment channels and stuff. But yeah, so I think really just getting this like UX stuff like really well. And if we can't get that well, I think that's honestly the biggest threat to like the usability of this like interoperability mechanisms. Cool. Sunny, what do you think is something that is uh, most misunderstood? or underrated or underappreciated about what we've been talking about that you think people should really be spending more time thinking about or, or taking another look at? I don't know if this is the most underrated, but something that we really didn't touch on, but I think it's part of the interoperability story of Cosmos, which, like you know, I think we've glanced at it, but really that we really believe in this idea of application-specific blockchains. Basically, this is sort of what the commun- like the blockchain ecosystem was doing pre-Ethereum, where it was like, okay, you want Bitcoin is for payments, Namecoin is for DNS. But then Ethereum came along and said, oh, here's this like Turing complete system, which kind of does everything and put all of your applications on a single threaded chain. And one of the things that I think Ethereum does or the EVM does is, you know, it's my personal belief that I, I by the way, I'm not like, I don't want to be like, make it sound like I'm like hating on Ethereum. My belief is just that I think smart contracts should be used exactly like that, like as contracts. Like the, if you want to write a one-time use thing, like a contract between for, or like a bet or like even an ICO fundraiser contract, right? That's where smart contracts really shine. When you start to build complex dApps, that's where it 
kind of becomes problematic because I feel Turing complete VMs were designed for like the general case, right? So an example is, you know, if I was building a payment blockchain, I would be using UTXOs, not account model because they're just you know better for parallelization and stuff but you need the account model was chosen because it's best for the general case not for your specialized use case and so what i really believe is this world is if we have interoperability we'll see many more application specific blockchains which are each like optimized for their own use cases so there'll be like a dex blockchain and a prediction markets blockchain and a crypto kitties blockchain and each of these blockchains will be like they won't be using the evm they'd be written in like a framework you know okay another kind of like you know pitch here but like what we've done is we've created this framework called the cosmos sdk which we think is a good base for building these application specific blockchains that can still you know in, integrate easily into the cosmos ecosystem cool well sunny seed thank you so much for for joining us for this podcast uh sunny where can people learn more about you online and what you know what's uh any plugs and what's to come so you know for me you can uh, follow me on twitter sunny a 97 i guess my plug is that like i also run a podcast as well called epicenter you know I listen to a lot of your podcasts and they seem like really cool content. So I'm sure your listeners would be really interested in a lot of the same thing, uh, similar things that we discuss over at Epicenter. So check that out. Yeah. If you want to learn more about Tendermint or Cosmos, tendermint.com and cosmos.network. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. So it was a lot of fun diving into interoperability with you. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Take care, everybody. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 